of your worship, knowing you as you truly are. And I pray that you would guide me this morning, guide us this morning as we connect around your truth from your word, that you would instill that in us and that we would take that out into our everyday lives. I pray all of these things in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. It's one God now and forever. Amen. Well, I'm excited to go through, continue to go through God's story together. I'm excited to jump in um, and continue through this. Last week, we kind of talked through Pentecost and, and what was going on there at Pentecost. And, and this week, we'll kind of take a, a part two to what's going on in the book of Acts, if you will. And we'll kind of... Um, you know, see how those things connect with, together and to, and to see how those, how those things are uh, moving the story forward. It, one thing I wanted to bring up about Pentecost is that w- we talked about it last week, that Pentecost, is, I mean, uh, Pentecost is this reversing of the Tower of Babel. It's taking what happened at the Tower of Babel and it's kind of turning it on its head. Tower of Babel is a moment that came in Genesis 11. At creation in Genesis 1 and 2, God looks upon Adam and looks upon Eve and He commissions them to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth, to make God's name known across the face of the earth. And what we see by the time we get to Genesis 11 is we see humanity building a tower to make their name great, their own name great. So the point of humanity had become to make much of themselves when the mission and the purpose of God was to make God's name known. And I'm going to let you draw whatever conclusions you want to our current culture and where we are in life. But Pentecost is taking that and reversing it. At Babel, God sees what they're doing, making their name their own, trying to make their own name great. And so he disperses them across the face of the earth, confusing their language. And at Pentecost, he is gathering them together, out of every nation, into one nation new people, a gathered people. And so that's kind of the moment of Pentecost is this gathering. It's like God's putting His arms around and scooping out of every nation those that are drawn to Him, those that would respond to His call, and He's drawing them together. Some believed, some did not believe. He gathers together a people. And what we're going to see today is we're going to see, do I have Pentecost on it? It shouldn't say Pentecost, it should say scattering, whatever. We'll get, uh, we'll get over that. But um, the, what we'll see today is kind of the other part. That there is a, there's a gathered identity to the church, but there's also a scattered identity to the church. And we want to step into both of those. So the church has this gathered and scattered identity that thrives in persecution. This identity that that we have is uh, not undone by uh, pain and suffering and persecution, but the church actually thrives in that environment. Uh, We do well with the gathered part of that, I think, as a church. Um, We still got work to do. 
I know I have work to do. I, I think most churches would say there's work to do with the gathered reality of the church, the gathered identity of the church. We work really hard at that gathered part. But we have a lot of work to do on the scattered part of that identity. And we cannot forsake one for the other. We cannot pit these against each other. They are both absolutely necessary because they are the identity of the church. So there's a couple of things I want to say before we dive into our time. And really these are kind of two parts to one kind of reality. One thing I want to say is this, to all of us here, to all of us online, to all of us um, that are a part of the church, this is true. Every person that is indwelled by the Holy Spirit carries the DNA of the church. Every person. If you are a person in this room, if you're a person at all, if you're a person online, and if you're included in that every person reality, then you, and you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, if you have come to the uh, place of following Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I am saved by you and I'm going to continue to be sanctified by you because I know in my future I'm going to be glorified by you, and all of those things are salvation, then you carry the DNA of the church. And I hope to see that through um, our time together. There's a reason why we don't see this, I think. Um, and what I mean by carrying the DNA of the church, let me be clear about what I mean by carrying the DNA of the church. I said something about that last week. I've said things about that before. Let me be clear because I, I think we need to know exactly what we're talking about. What does it mean? How do you carry the DNA of the church? How do you reproduce the church? If every Christian on the planet was annihilated tomorrow, how could you, and you're the only one left, how could you, carrying the DNA of the church, start the entire thing back over again? You could, by the way. And the, the way you would do that is by making one disciple. Teaching them to make a disciple. And then that, right? So discipling, discipleship is the way in which we carry the DNA of the church. We have gotten to a place in the church where we're so disconnected are these twin realities. Number one, from the perspective of church members, we see disciples primarily being made in two places, from classrooms and from pulpits. That's where disciples are made, and that's how we disciple. And I, 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 can't, I can't get up there and teach a class. I don't, I don't know enough of the Bible to, to get up and teach a bunch of other people that know the Bible, and they're going to know if I say something wrong, and they're going to know if I'm in step. They're going to correct me, and that's going to be embarrassing, and who wants to do that? An even higher standard sometimes is to say, but if I'm going to actually step up in the pulpit, if I'm going to preach, if I'm going to be the one preaching from a pulpit, then i got to go to seminary. i got to put that seven and a half years of commitment in. Could have been a lawyer. Life choices, right? Um, they don't tell you that on the front side, though. You know, you just start getting going. Just kidding. I, I, I would never want to be a lawyer. Um, they're almost as despised as pastors. Um, the, 
The, the idea, though, is we see it happening that way, and, and we think that's how it is. We weren't discipled, and so we don't, have that, we don't have that in our life. And that brings us to the second. The twin part of that is the way in which the leadership of the church is built and formed, and, the, what, and our expectations of our leadership, of our expectations of pastoral leadership. What is the primary function of church leadership? If I talk to some, they would say, well, to, to go to hospitals, to, to care for those that are sick, to, to respond to those that are in need, to, um, you know, check in and, and call and, 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 and just really shepherd, just really care for the flock. Others might say, you know, the reality is, is, is the, the pastor's primary responsibility is to do something like preach and pray. And I'm here to tell you that all of those things are absolutely critical. All of those things are absolutely necessary. And you, there's no point where you can say, hey, you know, I'm tapping out on these things. But that's not the primary purpose of the, church, of the pastor of the church. The primary purpose of the leadership of the church is to equip the church for mission and ministry. That's what Ephesians says, point blank, in, in, in chapter 4, the purpose of the leadership of the church is to equip the church for ministry and mission. And, and, and I'm afraid what we've kind of done, and it's not just it's not the church putting it on the pastor. The pastors put it on the church. The pastors put it on themselves. And we just kind of, kind of get into this identity. Look, equipping people to go out for mission is hard. And so we kind of mail it in. You know, we bring a missionary to speak to the church every, you know, couple of years. And, uh, you know, people get wind that they're going to be there. And so they're like, oh, I don't have to show up. You know, good. You know, I take a Sunday off or whatever, you know. Um, and so it's a twin thing. And so we want to see it different. So for, for this morning, we do me a favor. Can we just suspend for a moment everything we kind of believe about church? I, I promise you, we can pick it up at the end. But if we could just suspend for a moment those things that we brought with us into this room. And can we listen to what maybe the book of Acts is trying to show us and tell us, not just about how we do church, but about who we are as a church. And I think, um, I think we might hear some amazing things. So we're going to be in Acts this morning as well. We were in Acts last week. We'll be in Acts next week, at least partly. So I want to I want to turn to Acts chapter six. And the first thing that we're going to see is we're going to see the first martyr. We're going to see Stephen as the first martyr. And it says you know um, it says that we're going to go through six through eight, but I'm, I'm going to bounce around a little bit. I just want to read some moments from these so that you can see uh, kind of what's going on. Um. It says, starting in verse 8 of chapter 6, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it's called, and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, um, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak against this holy, this holy place and the law. For we have heard him saying that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. Verse 51. Well, let me say this. This moment, Stephen's going to take this opportunity to look at these people that are bringing opposition against him, and he's going to answer. And his answer is interesting. It's what we've talked about last week. And When he preaches Jesus, when he starts to tell people who Jesus is and why he's doing what he's doing, he, he doesn't start with the Gospel of Matthew. He starts back into this story. So he goes through the story. A little bit differently than we've been through the story. You could go through the, the, you know, the Old Testament in many different ways, but he takes them through this journey as they go. And then he comes to this point in verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in the heart and ears. Over and over again in the prophets, God's people are called stiff-necked. Do you all know what stiff-necked is like? Y'all ever know anybody who is, is they're so, they're, all they can see is what's in front of them, and they're just oblivious to everything else going on around them. They're just so laser focused, they cannot turn their head to the left or the right to see what's going on around them. They're just stiff, they refuse to turn, they refuse to change. They're just, there's one way this can be, and that's it. So the stiff-necked people, he says, are uncircumcised in the heart. What a strange phrase to be circumcised in your heart. But that's exactly what Moses calls Israel to in Deuteronomy. This is not about a physical circumcision of, well, a physical circumcision. This is a spiritual circumcision as well. Your heart needs to be circumcised. He talks about the law. The law needs to be uh, engraved, written on your heart. Think about that. These were chiseled into stone. And he's saying your, your heart should be the tablet by which this law is chiseled into. So what he's saying is, is you guys are just like them. You're stiff-necked. You're not willing to circumcise your heart. You're not willing to engrave these truths on your heart. So you're stiff-necked and stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in the heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your father not? Do your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, I would guess so. 
And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they, caught, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. A few more verses I want us to hear. And Saul approved of this this execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committing them to prison. Man, it's a lot. This is what we want to see. First of all, I want to say the slaughter of Stephen, and that's what it was, a slaughter. The slaughter of Stephen ignites a shockwave through the church that sends mission-minded followers of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Stephen is slaughtered. But what happens at that slaughtering is not what the enemies of God quite expected. That moment explodes people everywhere. And there's a man, not only are they exploded everywhere, but they, just in case they started to kind of get to a place where they got comfortable, they had a man right behind them named Saul chasing them down to ensure they kept going. Saul pushes them further and further out. So there's a few things here we want to see about Stephen. First, I want to see that Stephen is described as being full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, and full of power. That's pretty awesome to be full of all those three things. I mean, I've known, I've heard people described as like, man, that dude's got the Spirit, right? Or he's anointed by the Spirit. Stephen, not just one time, twice, it says that this dude is chock full. Full of the Holy Spirit. Full of grace, which we see as he's dying, saying, don't hold this against them. Full of power in that moment when opposition starts as opposition, right? Stephen comes against opposition. Does he take a step back? No, he steps forward into persecution. And at persecution, it's there. Does he step back? No, he steps back into execution. Or steps forward into execution. Church, we can't miss this everywhere that there is opposition, persecution is following. And wherever there is persecution, execution is on the way. And I'll let you draw conclusions about our culture on where we are now, but I would say at least we are at opposition. Do not think for a second that we can take on opposition by stepping backwards. 
just doesn't work that way. So we see Stephen is described as full of Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power. Let me say one more thing about this moment where we see somebody full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, full of power. We also see Stephen, you know, think back to Acts 1.8. Those that kind of have been there, if you could flip back, just mark that for a second. Jesus speaks to his apostles. He speaks to his uh, 11 at that point soon to be 12 with Matthias, but he speaks to them and he says this. He says, therefore, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit upon you. Power is going to, be, come, upon, is going to come upon you so that you'll be my witnesses to Jeru- in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus commissions his apostles, his 11 with. Do you see in this moment when Stephen is pounded into the ground. Number one, he is full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. Two, he is full of power. He has given the power. Three, he is a witness. You want to know what the word witness in the Greek is in Acts 1.8? Martyr. And four, the result of his death is the gospel moves from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. As Philip goes because he's scattered, and the man we see chasing them down, we won't get there this week, but we'll get there next week, is going to take it to the ends of the earth. And it is in the moment of Stephen. And Stephen was not there. He wasn't in front of Jesus when Jesus was telling him this, telling them this. Where did Stephen come from? He was discipled by those whom Jesus did share these things with. So this is the thing. The disciples of Peter don't look like Peter. The disciples of Peter look like Jesus. And Stephen speaks from knowledge, wisdom, and spirit, and he refuses to back down to opposition, he refuses to back down to persecution, and he refuses to back down to execution. Even in his execution, he shows that he's full of the Holy Spirit. Um, the final thing there is Stephen's being falsely accused. I don't think we can miss this. The false accusations that come upon Stephen, look back, we've talked about it uh, at Ma- in Mark when we talked about the crucifixion in Mark 14, 56-65, that Jesus, they, they bring false witnesses, false um, testimony against him that Jesus is a blasphemer, that he's speaking against the temple, that he's speaking against the law of Moses, and they execute him. And Stephen is very much treated in the same way. So he's falsely accused like Jesus before him and like Paul after him. In Acts 21, 27, and 28, one day Saul, who will become known as Paul, will stand at the temple, and they will say he's, he's defiling this place. He is a blasphemer. Um, so Stephen is pinned in between Jesus and Paul. And I don't think that's accidental. Um, he's kind of the bridge that makes that happen. It's pretty amazing. Um, so, so we see the first martyr, and then uh, moving on to chapter 11, we see the results of Stephen's death, the results of his execution, what happens? There's a lot of good stuff that happens between chapter 8 and 11, by the way, and we're not going to skip all that stuff. We're just not going to deal with all of it this morning. Um, in chapter 11, we're just going to chase down the, the scattering from, from Stephen's execution. 
So in chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered, there's our word, right? Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Very important verse. The report of of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. There's our phrase again. And of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Let me pause right there for a second. In between, this man chasing down the church has been on a road headed to Damascus to put people in jail, and he meets Jesus, and he turns to Jesus, and, and, and is baptized, and is preaching and teaching, but they were still afraid of him. And so they were like, yeah, we think it's amazing what, you're, what God's doing in your life, but maybe you need to go back to your hometown because people are freaked out. by You being around, you used to put them in jail, and blah, blah, blah. And so Barnabas recognizes the need in Antioch, and he goes looking in Tarsus for Paul and brings him back up to Antioch, or down, however the map goes. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So we see a new home base. The home base of the church starts at this moment to shift from Jerusalem to Antioch. Antioch is a place where there are also Jews, but there's also what's called Gentiles, so those that are not Jews. So the, the, the Lord starts to move not just in the life of those that, who have come up understanding the law, but he starts to move in the lives of people who've come up pagan, who have no idea about Judaism or the Jewish religion or any of those things. They're coming out of paganism. They're coming out of idolatry. They're coming out of you know, this worship of the, the trees and the air and all of that kind of stuff. And, and, and all of them are coming and forming one body at this new home base. Those scattered by Stephen's death plant churches throughout the known world. They start to plant churches. Where did they learn to plant churches? Was it Peter planting these churches? Matthew? Mark? Who's planting these churches? Let me show you who's planting these churches. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia. They weren't speaking to anybody but the the Jews, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch also spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greeks. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and their number grew. I, I, I submit to you that the most important church on the planet at the time, and really for hundreds of years after, was planted by nobodies. We don't know their names. We don't know who they are. They're just people. It doesn't say Matthew went there. It just says, and those that were scattered, and then some of those. Like, Could you imagine the, most, the biggest, the most 
um, attractive, the most, you know, the, with the most number of the people at a church, the, with the most impact on the world. Could you imagine like a mega church in, in, that, in those realms? And we don't know who the pastor is. We just don't even mention their name. I'm sure they knew who they were, I, but we don't know. You know, they, they didn't even mention their names. Why? They just carry the DNA of the church with them wherever they go. That's why they can't be squashed. Because you squirt them out all over the place and they just start planting new things. You can't get rid of it. It's a virus, like a virus. It's viral. It's the original going viral. It's the gospel. So Antioch becomes the new epicenter for the movement of the gospel to the nations. Antioch is not just this connection of the Jews and Gentiles. It's not this place that begins to grow. They don't just start to gather. They immediately start to send. The one thing that you can measure and you can mark about the health of your church is not your gathering, it's your sending. Right? You gather a bunch of people, you're not done. You're not done. Too many of us try to spike the ball, I think. Man, we got a bunch of people. And it's not about going to a church and we're going to get another church started where you can put my ugly mug on TV screens. But it's empowering people to take the DNA of the gospel to other people groups Start churches among other peoples. The apostles display this attentiveness to the move of the Holy Spirit, and they have a willingness to change. Isn't that amazing? There's like this church in Jerusalem, and they see this going on in Antioch, and they're not jealous because now Antioch is the bigger church. They send their best. Barnabas is said to be full of the Holy Spirit. He, we're not going to go back through, but look, Barnabas is a critical factor in the beginnings of the church and they send their best to this Antioch this church in Antioch and he is an amazing man he's an amazing encourager and Barnabas becomes the key you can kind of where where Stephen is sort of the key of this scattering Barnabas becomes a key to the shift between Jerusalem and Antioch. He, he becomes a, like a foundational movement, a foundational purpose. His name means son of encouragement. I have no doubts that he's encouraging. We see his interactions with Paul. He lives up to his name. Encouragement is so very important in the church. But even Barnabas recognizes this isn't enough. And he, start, he goes for Paul. Why Paul? Of all the people on the planet, why Paul? It's going back to where we began. Paul is an equipper. More than anything else, he's an equipper. We see him as a missionary. We see him as a man willing to go into persecution. It's absolutely true. He's willing to do all those things. But he equips as he goes. He builds teams. He empowers. And then he commissions Timothy and Titus, many others. Okay, so we see this movement and the, the, the key on Barnabas, and then we see in Acts 15, 22. So all of this causes, um, one, it causes issues with 
the Jewish people all over the place, and they start to kind of try to make Antioch more like them. They try to change the way Antioch is. So they see that Antioch's this really like fiery, kind of crazy type church. Like, what are y'all doing sending out your best people? Barnabas and Paul hanging out in Antioch. What, how does Antioch respond to having Barnabas and Paul? The two biggest names in the church probably at that time. How do they respond? They kick them out. Are you kidding? They say, you guys need to go. The world needs you. Go. It's pretty incredible. How does the church at Jerusalem... So, so, so then it, they, need, they gather together and they, want to, they see what's going on in Antioch. And this is what they do. I'm just going to read these, these few verses here. It says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard from, those, from uh, some persons who have gone out from us that, and troubled you with words and unsettling your minds, basically confusing you, Although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from things, from abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they heard that when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened by the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers uh, who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Man, I just love to be one of those many others also. So we see in this moment, we see this coming together, this recognition of the church of this one new man that Paul refers to in Ephesians. Not Jew, not Gentile, not slave, not free, not male, not female. One new representation of humanity. As intended, a witness upon the face of the earth that God is indeed still moving, still drawing, still sending. The gospel does not remain in ethnic limits but it moves to the nations through willing servants. Not through talented servants. Not through able servants. Through willing servants. Like the many others also. Just those people that are just summed up in an also. Church is a gathered reality of different cultures and backgrounds, but it creates one new people. Yes, we stay distinctive in our culture, distinctive in our backgrounds. We don't have to throw everything away. To, we're not becoming 
um, you know, a totally different person. That, that's a misnomer. That's a, that's a false, it's, 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 a, it's a false way of coming to Christ. If I just need to go and get, um, you know, um, a, a cross tattoo or a bracelet that says WWJD or God is bigger or a t-shirt or a hat or whatever, I don't know, put a Bible verse on my Facebook page. Like, I got to do something to let people know. But the church is a gathered reality and somewhat subversive. It carries, because they remain in their culture, they can go into these cultures, bring the gospel into those cultures, speak from truth. And the gospel is moving into the lives of other people groups. And people groups are all over the place. We started a business making candles. Why? Because we like candles, and we do. We're not against them. Because we wanted to make disciples among a people group that is not discipled like we think they should be or could be. Empowered, equipped. The gospel moving the lives of other people groups is not a function of the church, but it's the identity of the church. It's what it means to be the church. And the church is not there to create boundaries to construct these boundaries, to, get, to put like a fence around us and go, well, if you believe exactly like we do, you look exactly like we do, you, you behave exactly like we do, then you're on the inside. But if any of these things aren't true, you're on the outside. Like That's not the purpose of the church is to construct those boundaries. That's, it's a false way of being the church. That's not how the church operates. It's like they put um, a well right in the middle of this field, and people are just drawn to this living water. And as they're around that living water, there's discipleship. Does what they, ch- does what they believe change? Sure. Does what, how they behave change? Sure. Does, does how they look and how they think and how they talk change? Sure. But it comes from this surrounding of living water and in that way we're all in the same boat we're all still being changed the pastor isn't some finished reality now the rest of everybody kind of needs to get on with things or our Sunday school teachers or our, our advisory team or our deacons or our elders or anyone else that we look at and we think man they must be a finished product let me, let me go ahead and share with you they're not they're not None of us are. We all need to drink deeply of those living waters. So how do we respond? Well, I, I, I don't do this very often, but I just want to take a step back and I just want to preach the gospel this morning. I just want to proclaim the gospel if you'll allow me to do that for a moment, just to very clearly and very simply present the Gospel to you this morning. I'm going to do that with just simple acronym of just admit, believe, and commit. Okay? I don't do it very often, but I think it's very important for me to just preach this Gospel and pray. Deeply pray. And I have been praying all week and especially this morning that we would leave everything behind that we know and just come to a moment where we just accept the reality of the Gospel. So first, I pray that you would admit. Admit that you are a missionary. 
Admit you're a missionary. You are here to be sent. You're loved by the Father. We've seen that a lot. Have a good, good Father. And you do. And we have a mighty, amazing Savior who came to lead us into serving. Not being served, but servitude. So we have this wonderful Father, an amazing Savior. But don't forget, folks, you have a sending Spirit. You're a sent one of the Spirit. And those are just as much a gospel identity as any of those others. Two, that we believe. So we admit that we're a missionary. We believe that the Holy Spirit, being God, dwells within you and me and empowers us to be on mission. It's not your power. You say, I can accept. Maybe, maybe I can admit that I'm a missionary. Maybe, but I don't know what to do about it. Well, you don't, it's not about you being willing to do or able to do. It's about you being willing to do. And if you can come to that place where you just with me, just say, you know what? I'm just going to lay everything down. I'm just going to admit it finally in front of God and everybody. I'm just going to admit it finally. Okay, I'm a missionary. Now what? You just believe that God desires to take you wherever He wants to take you. Just surrender. God, if that's where you're going, I'm going. Third is to commit. Commit to learn and grow toward the mission that the Holy Spirit is calling you. It's not a done, you just go, I'm a missionary, fine. I'm going to be taken on by the Spirit, fine. I'm going to sit on the couch and eat Cheetos until the Spirit decides to take me to another country. That's not the way we see the response going on. You know, Paul was in Tarsus for over a decade. I don't think he was sitting on the couch eating Cheetos, waiting on Barnabas to knock on the door. You know, like come knock on the door. Finally, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's, It's learning and growing and pressing in. And if you're committed to do that, I'm, I'm committed to do it with you. I'm committed to help. I'm committed to guide. I'm committed to equip. I'm committed to learn to equip because I'm probably pretty terrible at it. And I'm learning and I'm growing. But we can do that together. We don't wait for one to the other and then the other. We just do it together. We just allow the Spirit to do whatever He's going to do with, with those that are surrendered to Him. And if that means we're the nameless, faceless upon this planet, so be it. Let's go step into what God is doing. Aren't you tired of the game? Aren't you tired of trying to pursue those other things? And leaving these things on the shelf? I am. I know I am. And I want to say this, and then we're going to respond together. I pray that we respond together. Um, I am your servant. Those online, whoever, I don't care who's hearing me right now. I just want to say, I am your servant. But I cannot allow you to be my master. Amen? I have one master. And I'm your servant. But I cannot allow, and I would expect you not to allow anyone else 
to become your master aside from Jesus Christ himself and his Holy Spirit planted within you for the purpose of sending you wherever that might be. Some people can respond to this and say, I'm going down into the well, into the darkness, whatever that takes. And some people can respond and say, I can't go down into the well, but I can hold that rope. I can hold the rope for you as you go down. And both are a critical part of mission. Paul makes no distinction between those two, by the way. None. It's just purposed on what Christ is calling us to do. So I, we're going to respond to this together. It is a little bit different, um, kind of a video, but I, I just want us to respond to this, however God is calling us to this morning.